This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to the Blank Podcast, a podcast where we delve into those difficult moments with some well-known guests. I'm Giles Paley Phillips, and the Buster Keaton to my Charlie Chaplin. <laughs> they're Excellent. Not, they're, it's Jim Daly. I'll take that. Lovely. Very kind. Thank you. How are you doing? Yeah, I don't know why I chose those two. That was a bit random. Well, you know, the nature of this pod sometimes is we just sort of go with the moment, don't we? It's a bit slapstick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, you know, yeah. whatever. People <laughs> like it. Uh well, good to be here. How are you doing? Good, man. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. It's been a busy day. This is about the fourth or fifth thing I've done today. Yeah, in you're London. packing it in today. Yeah, goodness. That's good, though, because you, obviously you live on the South Coast, so coming up to sort of. Yeah, it's just it good in. to make the worthwhile day. So make sure I can see as many people as possible. Yeah. So, yes. Yeah, and I'll tell you what, it's been a worthwhile pod this week. We've got an amazing guest. Yeah. I mean, literally, like the kind of almost the, the godfather of, of radio, really. Well, and, and someone that we're both huge fans of. Yeah. I think well, I can safely say that. Oh, 100%. Yeah. yeah. It's Mr. James O'Brien. Oh, James O'Brien. What a legend. Oh, an absolute legend. Um, I guess first became aware of James James's work, I guess, like a lot of people, with those sort of monologues. And it'd be unfair to call them takedowns of people, but yeah, just I think, kind of I correcting. He used, well, he would later use the phrase, pull people's pants down. Yeah. <laughs> Which is um, right. Kind of videos that went viral via LBC and, yeah, just, I guess, on all sort of political subjects from yeah. um, Islamophobia um, through to Brexit, obviously, more recently Trump and everything yeah. like that. So, yeah, and he's become, his uh, notoriety has become sort of widespread since then. Yeah, but he's had, as it turns out on the pod, he's had a sort of very varied and interesting career before that, which he goes into in some depth on, on this podcast. Yeah. And actually, I'm really surprised that it takes us about an hour in to even mention the word Brexit. I kind of oh, thought yeah, it was, was going to be a Brexit-filled yeah. It wasn't. It was, and, and actually, I think that's to the to the power of the pod, actually, because it's a very interesting chat. Yeah, and we got to hear a lot about his 
career as journalist and stuff like that, which was really, really interesting. Not a, a stuff that maybe people haven't heard before about um, life as a, a very busy uh, gossip columnist. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and that kind of feeling of getting your name in the paper, which, yeah. you know, as a journalist is your, you know, your sort of mecca of getting in, you know, getting your name and getting that byline with your name in is that kind of goal that you're all reaching for. So Yeah, it's some really good stories. And I yeah. think we should just delve straight we in. We certainly should. Here's James O'Brien on The Blank Podcast. Well, James O'Brien, welcome to the Blank Podcast. Thank you, chaps. Well, thank you very much for coming down. How are you? Very well indeed. Thank Good. you. How are you? Oh, do you know what? No one ever asked that. Yeah, that's very nice. You're <laughs> yeah. honestly the first person who's ever asked us. My mum will be proud. <laughs> Politeness. It's, yeah, I'm doing all right. It's a bit hot today, but um, I'm so Well, it's a funny one today, isn't it? Because it's kind of all weathers. We've had a bit of wind, rain, sun. Packing it all yeah, in. Yeah, all packing it in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we normally start the podcast by asking about early life of our guest sure i know you've been quite open about the fact you were adopted after mm. 28 days um were your adopted parents always quite open about it yeah never did never didn't know it's a really weird one this because you find it interesting my my sister and i find it dull <laughs> we, we did because it's yeah. just the most yeah commonplace and ordinary part of our childhood but mum and dad obviously appreciated that it that it was extraordinary so they equipped us with with what we needed to to, to to kind of deal with that. And and the best way in which they did it, as you've already sort of second-guessed, was A, we never didn't know. So there was never any, mm. um, you know, shock or revelation moment or, or EastEnders drumbeat at the, <laughs> at the end of a family get-together. And and the second thing was, was love, you know. So, I, I mean, a lot of people who are adopted struggle with a sense of rejection or abandonment. Mm. And um, it may well be that I have one deeply, deeply, deeply buried under various layers of self-absorption. But I don't think I do. And I think that's because the one thing that I never doubted for a nanosecond when, when I was growing up was not only that mum and dad loved the bones of us, but also because it was, you know, not a very religious household, but there was a backdrop of my dad's Catholicism. If dad hadn't been a Catholic, they wouldn't have been able to adopt us, actually. Mm. They're, 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 people forget this. Mum got turned down for not being a Catholic by a couple of adoption agencies. Oh, wow. um, and, and so it was present in our lives. And we also had the idea that God had put us together as a family, which, which I think insulated us against any sense of insecurity or inferiority, which, which I, I understand why some people can grow up feeling that. But no, not us. I think mm. it's hard, isn't it, to be open your parents it must have been hard to be that open with I don't know I, I, my mum and I share a, a dad's not with us anymore he, he was a little bit more reserved he, he was quite a, a, a doer that's not fair he, was, he, he didn't feel any need to share our business private business public mum's the polar opposite mum mm. mum I mean there's no one in Kidderminster that doesn't know about the <laughs> radio show or my book for example <laughs> She's the kind of woman it takes her 90 minutes to get around Sainsbury's because she has to stop and have a chat. She has to stop and have a chat with everybody. And I, I, I've taken after her. So I, I've always felt that the stuff that might make mark you out as different is the stuff in a really healthy emotional landscape. It's the stuff that you're not necessarily proud of, although I'm proud of my family and I'm proud of being adopted. But there's no shame attached at yeah. all, you know. Mm -hmm. we, I went through something similar when we needed fertility treatment because 
um, because my sperm were, were very thin on the ground and mostly doing the backstroke. Now, a lot of men find that odd that I can say that yeah. so comfortably and casually in public, but I just don't. I don't know why. I, I don't know whether it's something to do with the way we were raised, something to do with the hard wiring in, in, in my DNA, but I do know that by talking about things that make you different comfortably, confidently, very, very happily, it can provide an awful lot of help to people who don't find it easy mm. to do. So when we came out about IVF treatment, I wrote a big article for the Daily Mail of all places <laughs> um, about about it and, and the number of people who got in touch, the number of people who still do. I mean, this is going back 13 years, yeah. 13 and a half years. Uh, I can date it by the age of my oldest daughter. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and still, if you Google, obviously this piece still comes up mm. because I get messages most recently um, from Denmark, of all places, from someone saying this is the first article that I've been able to find for my husband who's really, really struggling wow. with this stuff. So I, I've never quite got that. And then the, the corollary of that, of course, is that people presume that there's some shame attached. So, so sometimes when I get um, a, a funny attempts at rudeness into the studio, they'll, they'll, they'll try and pick up on my infertility or pick up on the fact that I'm adopted and, and suggest that somehow I'm going to be ashamed of that, despite the fact that they only know about it because I told I can't, I can't so, uh, I deconstruct the psychology of that kind of worldview. But to be sympathetic for a mm. moment to them, they obviously, most people who think that I'll be ashamed of being slightly different, mm. must themselves yeah. live with an appalling sense of shame at whatever it is that makes them slightly different, mm. whether it's a repressed sexuality or, yeah. or, or whether it is some some sort of deep secret. And I, I'm a great believer that what do they say that that light light is the best? I can't remember the quote. Not the best bleach, but something like that. It's uh, get, getting stuff out in the open mm. for me has always been the healthiest way to live. Well, I guess there's there's a sense of ownership. You know that you get to own, yeah, but and also they're facts. These are yeah, facts well, that's about more, you. That's closer yeah. to it because even that that word ownership, usually we'd apply it to a mistake, wouldn't we? We'd say mm. you've got to own your mistakes. Yeah, you've yeah, got to yeah, own. Yeah, yeah, sure. And while I think that's true in most mo most contexts, this was never something that that I, I felt any differently about. I couldn't help myself. You know, we didn't want to go massively public with the fertility stuff when it was happening in case it didn't work. Mm. Yeah. So it's bad enough when when you've reached a point in your relationship where people are asking you when they're going to hear the pitter-patter of tiny feet mm. with the best of intentions mm. but it's bad enough dealing with that when every time you hear it your heart breaks a little bit yeah, more because yeah. you're staring over the the cliff edge of it never happening yeah but if then everybody knows that you're having fertility treatment there's this dreadful e elephant in the room where, you know, <laughs> yeah, every, yeah. every time your wife goes to the toilet you're thinking oh god i hope she's not about to start a period and yeah, you don't yeah. want everybody else joining <laughs> in on it <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> yeah. absolutely so, yeah. so so no not, not ownership necessarily but certainly a sense of um, I don't know, proprietorialness. Yeah, and these are things that have happened to you that are yeah. irrefutable facts. Yeah. So there's you, nothing you, you can do. It change it, about it. Equally, you can't be as pleased with yourself as I am without without taking every single brick <laughs> that <has been laughs> that's contributed to the building and giving it a little polish every now and then. Well, well that's fair. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Self love, nothing wrong with that. <laughs> yeah. So home life was fairly open, was it? You you, you had yeah, kind of always, open could conversations. Yeah, always talk, talk to um, mum and dad. I can't remember any conversation we didn't have. You know, mum was very, very, very uh, open. I, I've never had any trouble. Unlike a lot of lads who ended up at all boys boarding schools, I, I, I didn't struggle talking to girls and stuff like that. I was a, a, a bit of a, I think I was a bit more of an idiot romantic than I would have been if I'd had girls in my class every day. But mm. I could talk to mum about sex, about you know, puberty, all of that stuff, waiting for your first pubes, all of, all of that. There was never any sense at all of stuff being off limits at, at, at home. And, and that kind of, um, 
set the tone for, for, for all of my childhood. A lot of love, a lot of openness, a lot mm. of conversation. Dad was away a lot. He's a, a journalist with the Daily Telegraph. Mm. So um, before I went away to school, I'd be conscious of, of, of not seeing my dad as much as perhaps mm. I might have liked. But equally, I'd be conscious of how proud I was that he had such a cool job and I could see his name on the front page of the yeah. Daily Telegraph mm. almost every morning. Back uh, in the day. We do have a, a link actually when it comes to school because my dad went to Ampleforth. Is, is that College. right? Yeah. Gosh. And did, did it, is he all right? Is he? Is he all right? <laughs> 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 He's a fairly well-rounded man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, got a lot, yeah, lot, lot of love it. for him. Yeah. There's no, I mean, there's no objective treatment there. You know, I had some fantastic experiences, made some great friends, had some brilliant teachers. But equally, mm. I think now with, uh, I mean, 21st century sensibilities, a, it's odd to send your kids away in many ways, mm. full yeah. stop, and, and, and B, that school had a lot of dark stuff going on that we didn't really appreciate at the time, but which has, which has come out since. So presumably that's why he didn't send you. <laughs> Even though I just don't think I was bright enough that's to go. Right, <laughs> um, I've, never actually, you know, I've never actually asked him about it or talked to him yeah. about it. Right. It was only from doing research on you today, and then right? suddenly realised, oh, before, so it's been mentioned before. So, oh, how interesting. Yeah, but he would—he's seventy-one now, so it would have been. We wouldn't have been in the same class then. No. <laughs> <laughs> but how did you find that though, being being sent away, as you as you put it? Well, do you know, I'd have objected to the word "sent away" until quite recently. Mm. I, I've been thinking about it a lot lately because my girls are reaching the age where we're making decisions about their education. But but there was a, 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 a tension there. Now that I look back, but and the tension was between being subconsciously aware of the oddness and and of the loneliness. You know, mm. I, 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 because I've explained to you, there was so much love at home mm. that suddenly not being at home, and I got a yeah. nice run into it. So I weekly boarded. At my prep school at, from the age of 10 because I really wanted to. I couldn't play the lead in the school play unless I was available for rehearsals in the evenings and that would have been true. So I stuck my hand up uh, sort of without really thinking things through. But that meant I was going home every weekend. And then by the time I went to school in Yorkshire to Ampleforth, 200 and odd miles away, I, I kind of got used to it. So I didn't have that gnashing of, of the teeth that some lads who'd never boarded before would have had. But this curious tension between consciousness of how lucky you were to be there because there's no you know being about the bush it cost a ton of money after dad died and after my kids grew up I realized that they couldn't really afford it I mean it, it, mm. it's a bit of a cliche but we never had fancy cars we never really went on holiday I remember going to stay in a caravan a static caravan in Brittany that's the only holiday I can remember as a kid so looking back now mum and dad had made their decisions and they put all their money into that and I was clearly conscious of that without being as conscious mm. as I am now yeah. because it was almost like you weren't allowed to feel sorry for yourself mm. because you were simultaneously conscious of how lucky you were to be there and well mum and dad went to great pains to say if you're not happy come home you don't have to stay mm. I think I think not 100% sure but I think I would have found it very very difficult to tell them I was so unhappy I wanted to come home because of everything that they'd invested in the mm -hmm. idea of me being there. Luckily, I never really was that unhappy. But, but I suspect that even if I had been, I wouldn't have been able to admit it even to myself. And that's a tension mm. that I think must have been in place for, for the whole five years and quite possibly is one of those things that does end up sort of buried deep in, in, in your subconscious. So you say sent away. You could, yeah, well, yeah. In a therapeutic context, people talk about abandonment. Mm. It's an abandonment issue. So coupled with the adoption, mm. I should be all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess, think I am. I guess as well, because if you know, even at a, you know, a young age, that people have committed this 
money and, and yeah. this thing for you that it almost feels like if it's not going well for you and you're not really happy, you're sort of letting them down. Yeah, I wish I'd felt more like that about working hard and, and not um, wasting a lot of the opportunities that, that were there. But I don't know whether anyone can help being a bit lazy or a bit bored or a bit easily distracted. Yeah. But, but certainly the sense that, you know, my dad left school at 15 or 14, I think, and, and he grew up above the, what was renowned as the roughest pub in Leeds. So for him, this was an astonishing leap yeah. mm. to, to send yeah. his son to this particular school, which as a Catholic is, you know, they say it's, it's the Eton for Catholics. Yeah. Yeah. It isn't because the really snobby Catholics go to Eton. Right? <laughs> yeah. like yeah. but, but still, for, <laughs> for normal Catholics, this yeah. was the absolute pinnacle. And, and um, uh, yeah, you're very, very conscious of that. Uh, and, and also of as I get older, of why he did it, which would be, I realise now, being on the Daily Telegraph with a fairly broad Yorkshire accent would have seen certain doors close to him, whether yeah. consciously or subconsciously. And he'd see these Herberts in, you know, with waistcoats and pocket watches waltzing past. Mm. And and I think he, he, he knew that he was better than them, uh, cold, hard journalism. But he also knew that there were things... He'd never been taught and, and things he'd never picked up and learned. And, I, and, I, and he, 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 him and mum took the view that I had as much right to those glittering prizes as any hyphenated Herbert. And so he would spend his money on, on getting me the golden ticket. Mm. And I just wish he'd been around for a little bit longer to see, um, without being immodest, to see that it worked. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hyphenated Herberts. That sounds like a kid's, kid's <coughs> TV Somerset, show. The Somerset like, hyphenated Herbert. <laughs> hyphenated Herbert. <laughs> So was writing and journalism, was that something that you thought you would go into? Yeah, I, I think a lot of us want yeah. to be our dads when we grow up, don't we? If we're well, my dad was an accountant. Well, so, well, uh, yeah, very, sorry, dad, but maybe, very much maybe not, not. Maybe not accountant. But, but the, the, I mean, journalism seems so exciting. Not exciting enough for dad. He pretended to be a spy. Oh, really? Until we were about, until we were about six, because he got a... <laughs> He got a briefcase with a combination. Ah. And my sister and I thought this was like the most mysterious and exciting thing ever. It probably had his sandwiches. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Was it like the James Bond one in From Russia With Love? <laughs> oh, my God. That's so amazing. He started this um, fantasy that that, it, that he was a spy. And because he'd go away on jobs a lot, we just believed it. He said, I've, I've got to go and uh, I can't tell you too much about it. But there's some Russians involved. So <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> and we just loved it. And then he, he had a... I started telling people because I take after my mum, you see. So I'm, yeah, okay, yeah. I'm a blabbermouth, and Dad obviously had a bit of a panic. Like, oh. It's going round, Kidderminster. <laughs> not, not because he was actually a spy and I was blowing his cover, but I think out of protectiveness, he didn't want me to look like a wazzock because everyone else, <laughs> everyone else, of course, he is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's probably good he wasn't a spy, because <laughs> you were going around telling everyone. It was a brilliant double bluff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. like, the perfect cover. Yeah. yeah. So he felt compelled to tell us one day that he was not going to be a spy anymore. He was going to concentrate <laughs> on the journalism. But we'd be about six and four. And uh. it's one of those weird memories. I don't know if I remember it or whether or not we laughed about it as a family so yeah, much yeah. that it's become a false memory, a yeah. pretend memory. It's not a false memory because it definitely happened. So Charlotte and I, would we'd, we'd put up a banner saying, welcome home, a happy retirement. <laughs> and all this is in the porch in our little house in Kidderminster. God knows what was going through their minds. You realise when you become a parent, don't you, that yeah, a, lot yeah. of, a lot of communication between partners goes on just above the head of Absolutely, the child. Yeah. Like the best Disney films, actually. Yeah, where, you know, the gags yeah. in, in, in Toy Story or something. There's yeah. no way these children understand these <laughs> jokes. So they must, that must have been a happy moment for those two. And, and that was the end of Dad's 
spying through. <laughs> <laughs> I'm having a I'm having my first baby in September. Oh. I'm definitely going to tell it I'm a spy. Yeah, well, why not? I highly recommend I'm a professional it. footballer or something. I <laughs> no, because that's more it's easily unravelable. It's, it's the checkability yeah. of yeah, it. Yeah, spy is perfect. Exactly. Yeah, it's true. Especially actually, in the yeah. days of the internet, because you can't even claim you did something 20 years ago now. They'll just Google it and bust <laughs> yeah. you for bullshitting me. <laughs> oh, dear. Hmm. Yeah, sorry, I enjoyed that. That was good. <laughs> so, yeah, so obviously... So did you enjoy English? Or was English a, a subject that you... Back were, to journalism. Yeah, so, yeah, so, yeah, he yeah. wasn't a spy. No. I, wanted to, yeah, yeah. I, I wanted to follow him into journalism. Yeah. I could always string a sentence together. I, I always had a... You know, compared to everyone else in my mm. class, I always always had a way with words. Um, and, yeah, I mean, if you'd asked me when I was 13, 14 what I wanted to be, I'd have said I want to be an actor, a journalist, or a politician. And um, I suppose in some ways I still do. It's a, it's a, it's a curious combination. In that order? Well, it's a curious combination of all three, actually, yeah. in a way that I've ended up doing. So, Because um, you did acting for a while, didn't uh, not you? Not really, no. I, I, I mean, <laughs> Is changed, that being kind? I, 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 I loved it. Yeah. And I got into the National Youth Theatre. I went, instead of going to the National Youth Theatre, I went to the Manchester Youth Theatre, which was a sort of northern satellite of it, for, for the very mercenary reason that the first year you went to the National Youth Theatre... You did a course, and the first year you went to the Manchester Youth Theatre, you did a play. And the bloke that auditioned me for the National ran the Manchester, an amazing man called Jeff Sykes. Um, and, and he kind of poached me and said, hey, why don't you come? To, I've auditioned you for the National, but why don't you come and do Manchester? Because, um, and my godmother lived in Stockport, so I could stay there. And, and that changed my life that summer. That was 1988. It was the first time I'd spent time in the company of people who weren't middle-class, privately educated. I suspect I, I was pretty much the only one in that category. And um, it, it, it kind of changed everything for me. It was magnificent. So acting became a really big thing. I went back to school, did plays there. When I left school, instead of going to Kerala or, or Goa, where all my mates were hoping to go, I went. I moved back to Manchester. I moved to Chalton Cum Hardy and, and, and tried to... Uh, make a living is pushing it <laughs> I did about three plays but more excitingly I hung around in that subculture of theatre in Manchester so yeah. there was a theatre on Whitworth Street it had the Hacienda on the corner and then up here there was a little theatre called the Green Room and, uh, and, and it had a cafe and you could go to the corner house and at Ampleforth although it was a brilliant education it didn't encourage intellectualism so you know they had a brilliant theatre and we had great fun but I was in the same year as Lawrence Delalio. Um Now, he wasn't actually in the first 15 for rugby at school. <laughs> really? But, but obviously, he went on to captain the England's rugby team. And <clears throat> if I, I, one year, was national public speaking champion. And although my mates were very kind, no one, <laughs> no one gave a shit. <laughs> if, I'd got, if I'd ended up playing rugby for Yorkshire, not even for England schoolboys, yeah. then I'd have been carried shoulder high through the dining halls <laughs> of, of, of the whole school. So, um, uh, and, and if you were lucky enough to come across a teacher who could indulge and, and encourage mm. that side of your personality, you were a little bit lucky. So when I lived in Manchester, oddly, despite the thousands of pounds my parents had spent on my education, that's where I really got to feel part of a almost a bohemian um, community and poetry, and you could talk about stuff. Pretentious, I'm sure, but without getting beaten up by the <laughs> prop forward from yeah. a boarding house over the road, you know. Well, we've had quite a few actors come on this podcast and have said the, the thing they love about the being in a theatre group is the family kind of yes, you know, very much so. Yeah, very much so. And and um, 
and and yeah, I mean that that. So I did I did three or four different big productions with that youth theatre, and and some of my closest friends now are from those days. And then oh. there's a weird path crossing. So obviously I I, I know Krishna Gurumurthy quite well hmm. now from Channel Four. What I didn't know was that he'd done the same youth theatre the year oh, before really? me, right. and I think he had very he's more talented than I was because he's a brilliant musician as well. Um, and he was presenting TV programs by the time he was in the upper sixth, I think. It was astonishingly precocious. And then there's a lad called Matthew Sweet. I don't know if you've come across him, who's a, a brilliant broadcaster now on Radio 3, a film historian. He does all sorts. He was there as well um, with his sister Lucy, who went on to be a cartoonist. My friend Luke, who, who did very well as an actor for quite a while. Um, I'm still very good mates with him. People from all sorts of, 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 of different backgrounds. And I felt a sense of community that I think now that you come to mention it, I probably never did quite feel that at school. And mm. you know they say about finding your tribe. Yeah. It's a great phrase. I've only heard it relatively recently. Mm. And I think I found my tribe there, not at school. I don't think many people mm. do find their tribe at school. I sometimes wonder whether the people who find their tribe at school peak at school, mm. you know, because because they've kind of... If you're the cock of the walk when you're 16, 17, why bother trying yeah. to do anything else? You've already felt that. Yeah. magical kind of sense of esteem so yeah I think I found my tribe w with the acting with the acting outside of school so I was going to say so you, you preferred that uh, yeah, you yeah I in many ways felt I felt more more like you yeah I think so more at ease it's a weird thing about coming from a relatively normal background and going to a very posh school is that you don't fit in it either in yeah, yeah. I get my, I get when I came back to kiddie I'd have old mates who you know take the piss out of me for, mm. for, for, for the way I talked and at school there'd be people who might take the mickey a bit for the fact that I wasn't posh enough I remember mispronouncing anchovy once I thought you pronounce it like anchor because I'd never seen an anchovy an anchovy anchovy yeah, which yeah. Is, you know, and this was this was suicide social <laughs> suicide. it's like a mark of Cain or, or, or Coleridge's albatross turned around my neck for, for about half a term before they found someone else to pick on you know so you, you, you're conscious of all of that but in the background yeah always journalism um, I went off to LSE mum said I could go to drama school if I got a degree and by the time I was about a year into my degree and a lot of my mates who had gone to drama school uh, I, I realised I wasn't good enough. I, I just saw actors who I knew were better than me and I saw them struggling. And and then I saw, and I've told him this, this isn't a name drop because it was a lovely moment actually, I saw Michael Sheen oh, right, yeah, in, yeah. in a play called When She Danced which was about Isadora Duncan and Vanessa Redgrave played Isadora Duncan and Michael played her young lover. And I think he was still in his final year at RADA when he got cast in this West End production. And I went to see it with my girlfriend at the time. And I said to her in the interview, I was very fond of the... Also, I, I suspect I thought this was quite sexy. But, <laughs> but I was very fond of the grand gesture. And I said to her in the interval, I said, my, uh, my acting ambitions have died tonight. Because <laughs> <laughs> he was so good. I mean, he, yeah. I saw Mark Rylands play Romeo when I, was six, wow. when I was 16. And no one knew who Mark Rylands was. And actually a bit younger than 16. But he played him like a 15-year-old. He played him like he should be played, like, yeah. a, like a lovesick, idealistic, mm. you know, sweetheart. Yeah. And, and Rylance just did stuff with his feet. And he did stuff with his body. And I remember thinking then, hmm, yeah, maybe it's looking These like journalism or politics, mate. <laughs> but I wasn't quite ready to make the final break. But seeing Michael Sheen, after having spent that year in Manchester, 
paying a little tiny proportion of my rent with money that we made from selling theatre tickets. I knew. I, I just well, So that was the end of that. So and, it was just literally that moment? Yeah, and I, yeah. Did, I didn't do another play after my first year wow. at LSE. I've, I've, I've often missed it, and I'd like to have kept my hand in, but it was not... It wasn't my dream anymore. No, no, no pain in it particularly. No, no, no suffering. But just you'll never be that good. And and also, you know, my, another mate of mine who's done all right um, was gorgeous. He was a really stupidly handsome-looking bloke, and I knew I wasn't that either. So I didn't have Michael Sheen's talent. I didn't have my mate Luke's looks. <laughs> so you know, what was I going to be? I just, I just gonna, <laughs> Extras. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> end up playing. I always played the sidekick. I played, <laughs> yeah. I played Kent in Quirky Kibler, best friend. You know. Horatio in Hamlet. I played Meninius in Coriolanus. I never. I was always the bloody bridesmaid. <laughs> my ego was too big for that, yeah. and that's another reason why I'd have been a rubbish actor. Because a really good actor who loves the art and the craft would find something to celebrate in a small part, but yeah. I, it was never me. <laughs> but that's a really hard moment, especially mm. at a young age, to realise oh, I'm not good enough. Yeah. That's a big thing, to a, a big well, moment to arrive to at. admit to yourself that as well sometimes. I suppose it is, I suppose it is. Do you know, I wonder if there was a bit of cowardice involved. I wonder whether I dressed it up as some grand moment rather than have a crack at it and risk failure. Mm. I'd always had yeah. a tendency as a young man to... Uh, if, if I didn't think I could be the best at something, I wouldn't do it at all. Mm -hmm. One of my biggest regrets is not playing more rugby at school, yeah. oddly. Um, and part of that was because it was a religion and my anti-authoritarian street sort of wanted to reject the... But the other bit of it was I was never going to be the best in the in the year. But that shouldn't have mattered because it was great bloody fun to play. Yeah. I just had this stupid... Wolfie Smith type, you know, power to well, the people. Well, if I can, uh, you know, admit something, I, I still, I still struggle with that now a little bit. Do you? A little bit. Yeah. Certainly, when it comes to creativity, if I can't do something amazing, I sometimes give up and and don't do it. It's the it's it's the um the Tennyson line about better to have loved and lost than to have never loved at all, which is what we're both talking about. It, it is better to have loved and yeah. lost than to have never loved at all. But I guess if you're in the throes of heartbreak, you'd think you'd wish you'd never fallen in love. Yeah. In the first place. So you, you give it a try. As Beckett puts it best, when he says, fail, fail again, fail better. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Isn't it? Yeah, that's very true. But it's interesting that you weren't, obviously, I don't know if you were heartbroken at that moment. You With sort of said you kind of, yeah, you kind of moved on from it. No, just yeah. very casual. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was odd for, you know, I, 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 as I mentioned before, I have a tendency to lean towards a bit of egotism. But on that one, I just knew. Mm. I knew I, I was good. And, and it, you know, but I think I was better at other things. Mm. So acting just shifted into the rearview mirror, shifted into the background. For now. You know. <laughs> yeah, still yeah. Well, it's still time. Who it's knows? not too late. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> you might be coming to the right age to it's play some of these roles now. Finally got a character <laughs> on my face. Uh, and then it was, uh, Jen, did you sort of throw yourself into it? or Couldn't get arrested, mate. Couldn't get arrested. Um, Dad had been made redundant by the Telegraph in my last year at Ampleforth um, because, in their wisdom, they decided that they didn't need a Midlands correspondent, which was a very interesting indicator of the direction the industry was going, yeah. actually, but we didn't realise that at the time. Mm. He got offered other jobs but didn't want to move to London, so it would have involved shifting to a different newspaper and moving the whole family and they had a nice life in the Midlands, and I'd come out of school, so um, you know that requirement for the finances for the school fees wasn't as acute as it as it would have been. Um, but what it meant was that when I left LSE five years later, um, all of his contacts were either dead or or, or redundant themselves, mm. and I thought that he'd be able to get me in somewhere, get my foot in the door somewhere, and that I'd take care of the rest. And it, and it didn't happen. I turned up once at the Sunday Telegraph for, for work experience after calling in 
a favour from um, uh, someone Dad had known there. But when I got there, it wasn't it wasn't what I thought it was. Uh, it was my fault being a bit green. I thought, well, if I produce the goods for a fortnight, then they might offer me a shift or they might do this. Mm-hmm. But it was clear from the first hour we got there that it, not least because I was the only graduate, the other three lads doing it were um, six foot, they're just still in the sixth form. It was genuinely work experience, like school holiday uh, style yeah, work yeah. experience. And maybe if I'd had slightly more confidence, I could have, I mean, I'm sure if you march up to the news editor with a story, they don't care whether you're 18 yeah. or 28. But I, I didn't, I, I was quite, I, I don't know why, but I was quite crippled by insecurity. Um, at that point, partly I think because I got chucked out of school in my final year for, for for smoking weed, and that 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 I think that hit me a lot harder than I realised at the time because I don't know why when I arrived at places like that I don't know why I didn't feel to the manner born I should have done, but I didn't. Um, I don't know whether you're waiting for the next bomb to go off or the next mm. tap on the shoulder saying sorry, pal, your, your life's about to get thrown into turmoil but that didn't happen so I, I was selling suits I, I worked at Aquascooter on Regent Street all through college and then I carried on working there after college I, I was living in Soho um, astonishing that isn't it you could live in a, yeah. my own room <laughs> in Soho on a, on, on a shop assistant's wage um, and and the clock was ticking you know I think 18 months after after graduating mum had started making noises about maybe giving up on journalism and seeing about the opportunities of being an area manager or a regional manager in the in the retail sector, because I loved working in shops. I'd always loved working in shops. Um, but I, I didn't want to. I, I wanted to be a journalist. Uh, I knew I did. And John Major was prime minister at the time, and, and that depiction of him as being completely grey, that was on <laughs> spitting image, yeah, yeah. was very much in the public consciousness. And he bought a suit from us. All the tailors were gray. Off, uh, not, not a great <laughs> suit. He bought a, a navy suit, and then as, as the tailors were leaving Downing Street, and most of the proper tailors were off six, so I was a lot closer to the transaction than I would have been otherwise. He he, he mentioned that he had an EU summit just to make things topical. <laughs> <laughs> he had, a, had an EU summit Brilliant. coming up in Florence, and he fancied something a little bit different. Oh. We flogged him a white suit. White? A wow. white suit. I don't think it was even off-white. It might have been off-white. Maybe I'm slightly <laughs> mythologizing it from the memory. <laughs> so we kitted him out with a really nice bit of schmutter, as we used to do. <laughs> yeah. And I phoned the William Hickey column, at the, or what was then, I think, the Ross Benson column at the Daily Express, and offered them the story. And they offered me a few, couple, two or three hundred quid again, a mark of how far things have changed. Yeah. And I, I did discover a little bit of confidence at that point because I had a mate from school who was working on the column. He was very much more to the man of born than I was. And I pushed him a couple of stories. And I realize now, and he won't mind me saying this, he, he didn't want me to get shifts there because I was already a contact at this point. So I'd given him a couple oh, okay, of yeah. tales about, you know, so someone that, 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 that I knew socially who was had a title and had done something funny or never embarrassing stuff. But... He didn't want, so I'd been waiting for him to have a word with the boss and get me in. And I realise now that he was never going <laughs> yeah. to do that because he wanted all my stories. <laughs> and you get paid for them. Yeah. But getting paid for a story while you're measuring inside legs is very <laughs> different from getting paid for a story when you're writing yeah, it or course, at least trying yeah. to write it. And so I said, could, could I have a couple of shifts instead? And the, and the fellow I was talking to, an Irish fellow, John, is said, well, if you're sure, but you know, you, you don't get the same amount of money for the story as you would for the... Shifts, but you come in by all means if you want. Two two shifts, and, and that was it, finally, and few. Um, he saw some of John McEntee 
who now does the Ephraim Hartcastle column at the Mail, saw something in me that merited him mm. asking me back. And, and slowly, over the next six months, I cut down on the work in the shop and got more shifts on newspapers, not just the Express, but I did some on the Standard, some on the te- back, back at the Sunday Telegraph, oddly, um, until the point where I remember saying, thinking, right, I cannot... By the end, I was only doing Saturdays in the shop, still keeping it... You've got to keep your foot just in, in case, <laughs> yeah. Just in case. And I remember, yeah. I remember thinking, um, not long before Blair became Prime Minister, actually, I, I, I would have... Right, that's it, that's... Let's do it. And I, and I was up and running. And I used from the diaries, the gossip columns, into the showbiz beat, and then into, oddly and unexpectedly and unintentionally, into broadcasting. So, sorry, did, did John Major ever wear the suit then? Yeah. He yeah, wore it at the yeah, summit? we never found a picture of him in it. Um, he sounds like he... I'm just thinking... All I've got in my head is Alec Guinness. Oh, well, we dressed him up like Tom Wolfe. <laughs> oh, right. We did a Tom Wolfe imagining on the days before Photoshop. So it would have been, you know, from the art desk. I'm thinking more like Liverpool 96 FA Cup final. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably more that Spice style. Boy, John yeah, Major. Yeah. I think he looked. I think he would have looked great in looked it. Daffy, it would have been yeah. a very well cut suit. I'd have probably gone for side vents, two buttons, single breasted, <laughs> <laughs> perhaps a small turn up on the trouser, depending on how oh, heavy the cloth yeah, was. Yeah. And looking at him now, I'd say he was probably a 42 long. <laughs> Still got it. I don't know what any of those words just, just in meant. Case. <laughs> Literally, no idea. It's brilliant. <laughs> But when you were doing the gossip column, you you wrote under a pseudonym, didn't you? Not not really. No, no? this is something on Wikipedia that um, I read it somewhere else actually. But no, yes, yeah, so I think you're right. I think it is on Wikipedia. It, it, it's an odd one. Um, so it's not factually we, true. Well, then. no. I, I, first <laughs> of all, I never had my own column. I never okay. edited anything. I was only ever a, a, a never got higher than number three actually. But William Hickey was a was an 18th century Irish diarist who, who mm. famously wrote about his manservant Manu who'd come from the subcontinent and is in Amorata, Charlotte. It's published. You know, there's some almshouses, somewhere mm. like Twickenham or Richmond, actually, the William Hickey, which he gave the money for. So Tom Dryberg, the, the, the famously scurrilous Labour MP, wrote the William Hickey column for the Express, in, oh, in the, in okay. the, in the, I think, in between the wars. Um, and that was the name that the column had. On, and so I wrote for that. And, and yeah, someone so, so somewhere has, has decided that there's an embarrassment <laughs> attached to having, <laughs> yeah. well, having here we go, yeah. number three on <laughs> a desk <laughs> under, under the byline that was a, a, a man who'd been dead for 300 years. So I was really trying to pull the wool over I people's eyes. I wonder if you didn't want people to know you'd written for the Express. <laughs> that, <but> <laughs> no, I couldn't wait to get a byline, Giles. I, I remember, <laughs> actually, the bloke I just mentioned that I was at school with, he got a byline for... Um, this is quite pertinent because there's a story today about the Daily Mirror chicken. The bloke who used to dress up as a chicken to follow David Cameron around is now the director of communications at Downing Street. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yes, you couldn't make it up. Amazing. So, but oh, but I, so what good. I was saying to the younger young, younger colleagues in the office was that you say yes because they were saying, how could he ever have agreed to do that? And I said, don't be stupid. You, don't think you need to get noticed. Yeah. So my friend Henry... He, he, he walked up and down King's Road in Chelsea wearing stiletto heels for an article and he got a byline. Yeah. My friend Charlotte, um, who'd done a bit of modelling, but she was below me in the pecking order. She'd arrived later than me. She got a bloody byline because <laughs> Gwyneth Paltrow or someone like that turned up at a party in a pink leather catsuit and she could fit into this pink leather catsuit. So she did an article about, you know, going around in a pink leather catsuit. I was desperate for a byline. I'd have taken a byline for anything. There was never any embarrassment. I think my first byline might have been me road testing those ludicrous things you used to stick to yourself, like electronic pulses that were supposed to make you lose weight and I just oh those yeah so you get an eight pack yeah in the the health pages I just wanted a bloody (laughs) byline and and so no I did no did that feel proper though when you had got one 
Um, was that something to sort of show your mum? Yeah, it still yeah. is. Actually, yeah. I still get a little buzz out of a byline. Um, the big, the really exciting one was when I was still on the gossip column, and the, the Express turned into a seven-day operation. And I always loved my music, you know, pop music. I always loved pop music. Uh, and not, I'm afraid, in a cool way. I, I, I wasn't, you know, the kid at school that was listening to, to Led Zepp. Or, I did listen to Led Zepp. Yeah. I loved Led Zepp, but I also loved Aha. Um, and we still do. I still <laughs> yeah, do love yeah, I'll fight anyone who's got a problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> I like right too. here, right now. <laughs> um, and, and when the Express turned into a seven-day operation, the Sunday title was chronically underfunded. I mean, it was put together on a shoestring. Again, very much a mark of the direction in which the newspaper industry was going. And the, and the chap who kind of edited it um, knew that I was really into music, knew that I was really cheap, and knew that he had pages to fill in the paper. And he said, why don't you write a, something music for me? And so I, I put together a few stories and, a, and some reviews. And, and we were out in, um, I was out in Soho, with, 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 cause I lived there with my mate on, on a Saturday, and I didn't know what was going to go into the paper. And I was still writing the gossip bits without any byline. And I'd, and I'd said it, and, and I'd hung around a bit on the Friday night, but I didn't go in on the Saturday, because um, I think I was still working in the shop, actually. It's amazing how all this knits together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I was out with my friend Matt Pace, and, 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 and he, he said, well, let's go and get a copy from King's Cross, you know, and they drop them off at midnight and stuff like that. And I said, but what if... It hasn't gone in, and what if it? And and we went and bought a copy, and we flicked through it, and they hadn't just printed it; they turned it into a column with my photo at the oh, top oh, of it, and nice. the whole nine yards. And and you know, this would be, I'd be twenty seven, twenty six, and I, mate, even now, yeah, I could tell you. I remember what restaurant we were in. We we're in that Pricks Fix restaurant on Dean Street or, or or Greek Street. I always get them mixed up, and I just sat there, just like numb. Yeah. And tingly at all at the same Calling time. Calling the waiter over. Everything, <laughs> everything. Yeah, yeah, of course. And, and which is what mum would have been doing. Yeah. The same yeah. thing <laughs> the next day. Um, and that, that magic of seeing your name in print um, never goes away. Never goes away. Yeah. I don't think it ever does. I, I, I did journalism at university and then went worked on my local paper. So yeah. did the old route of working yeah, well, up. Well, dad did that. I wish I had sometimes, you know. Yeah, it wasn't the best experience. Sure. It was... <laughs> It was Uckfield. You it's were, the, the patch was Uckfield in New Sussex. <laughs> different age, though, isn't it? It's yeah. yeah, very true. And actually, at the time, no, local papers were dying as well. I think not really knew yes, it. exactly. I, I think my first byline, I can't remember what it was, but I was also doing work experience at the Independent on Sunday, oh, yeah. on Saturdays. I think my first byline there was ringing up um, Geraldine Lescott's brother, oh, really? who played for Wickham or something, and doing a little <laughs> tiny little thing with him in the corner. I'm interested Obscure, about yeah. very obscure, <laughs> yeah, and there's a reason they got me to do that. I can't remember. His name. Is it Aaron Lescott? I think. Um, wow. I'm I'm interested in what the new news desks were like at the time. Brutal. I bet they were brutal because oh. I remember when I went to the, do the indie my work experience. The ed- editor was a guy called I think Matt Tench. I think he was, and we were terrified of him. And that's at the quality and that's of at, the market. That's <laughs> yeah, at, you know, exactly. Yeah. Broadsheet in terms of mm. sensibility, if not in terms of actual size of the news. But I'll mm. give you one example, and this was one of the good guys. You mentioned ringing up Lescott Jr. <laughs> I, 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 that sorry. famous, sorry. famous Aaron, I think it was. <laughs> I, 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 Anthony Crossland, who, who was, a, I think, a minister in Wilson's government and a famous diarist. It's, mm. his, his diaries are supposed to be the basis for the Yes Minister oh, okay. yeah, yeah. comedy. And his widow, Susan, was also a very, very well-known journalist. And someone had published a new biography of Anthony Crossland, who'd been dead for a while by this point. And, and the fellow editing the 
gossip column said give Susan a ring will you we've just been sent a proof of this new biography of her dead husband give her a ring ask her if she knew he had a gay affair at Cambridge in the 1930s <laughs> oh my god <laughs> Oh, my God. And, and like I said, I'd have dressed up as a chicken at the yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay, boss. No problem. So I pick up the phone and I press some buttons and I listen as it goes. The time, Please don't sponsored by Accurate, <laughs> yeah, exactly. at the third stroke will exactly. be. And I did this too. And I said, this, I'm still not getting any. And I'm trying to, <laughs> my, I may even have gone out for a pint in the, and come back after. And I'm right, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it. I've got to do it. Because I was still in the shop most days. It was really early on. Yeah, it might yeah, have been the yeah. first thing he asked me to do after the white suit story, actually. Um, and I did it. And the editor of the whole paper came over about half an hour later and said, who's been pestering my friend Susan Cross? Oh, <laughs> oh, and, and you wouldn't have spoken to the editor for two yeah. or three years. Yeah. And, and I just put my little hand up. It's me. <laughs> expecting some genuine. I thought it had gone well. But, of course, what often happens is people are polite to you because they want to get you off the phone. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. But thank thank God she'd rung him up to say, some poor boy on your gossip column <laughs> just had to ring me. And, I'll, and she said to me, yes, I did know that. You poor, she's American. I won't do the action. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You poor boy. Who, 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 who did that to you? Yeah, she yes, understood so, what was happening. And then she rang up her friend who edited the whole paper. <laughs> I think she might even have done some diary stuff herself early in okay. her career. And it was, oh, and, and not only did I get over that obstacle, but now the editor knew who yeah, I was. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, he'd turn me down three years running for the graduate traineeship. I missed that <laughs> bit out. But at least yeah. now he had a better idea. He, yeah. could put a, he could put a face to the name. So Is it almost like an initiation? Yeah, that, that was. I think they yeah. give you something. And then you realize once you get into the, um, into the club and you're, you're drinking with the much older journalists and they've all got stories like mm, that. And, yeah. and a chap called Peter Torrey, who was one of the star columnists at the time, he, I mean, right up to and including ringing the speaking clock, he'd say, well, I did that all the time. <laughs> and I thought I'd invented that. I thought I was a genius. Because yeah. <laughs> some people can do it. Some people are fearless. Yeah. I used to envy them. Now I wonder whether they were sociopaths all along. And some of us need a really long run-up in, in, in order to do stuff mm. like that. But when I became show business editor, um, then I reported to the news editor. And that, that was brutal. Uh, I, partly because I wasn't very good at spotting stories. I was not, because I would be nervous and scared mm. about uh, these some of these environments. And also because I had really bad news sense. So often I would open the mail, which is our main rival, and I'd see a story, maybe say page five, top of page five, so a decent show. Mm. And I'd go, shit, I knew that. Mm. I just didn't realize it was a story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I picked that up when I interviewed so and so. Well, they were talking about that backstage at that gig I went to. So that, and, and I remember a couple of occasions where I, I remember the phlegm landing on my face when you're getting <laughs> bawled out in front of a oh, newsroom God. full of people. Oh, yeah. And because all the old lads, oh, not old lads, but all the hard news lads thought that we were. On a, on, a, on a mickey take all the time on showbiz because we got really good shows in the paper and when they'd be sent out to a picket line or a, or a murder yeah. we'd be sent out to a rock concert or a film <laughs> yeah, premiere yeah, so yeah. they all hated us they yeah, absolutely yeah. despised us so there was an element of theatre involved in bawling out this showbiz editor in short trousers who'd, who'd leapfrogged quite a few people for, for no discernible reason except charming the editor um, which changed by now. By now it was Rosie Boycott, who you might have known, actually. No, you're younger than me. But she, she'd come from the Independent to the Express with a yeah. mission to change everything. And I got caught up in that brilliantly and very, very luckily. 
But the news editors hated that world of, of you know, me getting a thousand-word piece in the paper about something cultural. They hated it. And so there was an element of theatre involved. When I did drop a couple of clangers, the, 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 the wrath of the news editor was something to behold. And I remember standing there and feeling little flecks of spittle land on my face as he is screaming at me in the newsroom in front of 50 adults at full volume. And I remember calculating in my brain the wisdom of pretending to faint. <laughs> I thought, what if I go down on the... What if I actually go down there? Because I can't... How long is this going to yeah. last for? This is just unbearable. <laughs> what if I pretend to faint? Plus, size, he might get into trouble. Um, it ends... Probably not, actually. This is before HR and things like that. <laughs> um, and again, talking about there being nothing new under the sun, I, I, I met a, a, a bloke called Tom Petrie who was Kelvin McKenzie's news editor on The Sun. So I'm quite conscious of the fact that what I went through would have been as nothing. Mm, yeah, he used to call God. Tom the Colonel. And I met him after he'd left newspapers. He'd gone to work at, at talk radio, talk sport. And I got on really, really well with him. Oddly enough, he, he probably is, is the reason why I've ended up being one of the people who doesn't realise what a part they played in me becoming a broadcaster. And when I became friends with Nick Ferrari, who works uh, does the breakfast show at LBC where I work now, I told Nick this story once about thinking that I might faint. And he said, oh, yeah, someone did that once with Kelvin. And he told me the name. I can't remember the name, but it was a journalist I'd heard of. And he was getting bawled out by Kelvin in the newsroom. <laughs> and he decided to pretend to faint. And Tom Petrie, <laughs> Tom Petrie, who was Kelvin's right-hand man, was like bending down and going, get up! <laughs> he hasn't finished! Get us up! So, so, so in retrospect, it probably wouldn't have worked. Get the smelling yeah, so I've got another go, yeah. yeah. I'm coming round again. <laughs> you made the right choice. It wouldn't have worked as a tactic, so I took my medicine. And, and, and then I started pushing back. But again, it would be with what appeared to everybody else as if I was a really ballsy... Um, you know, please, full of myself, getting, get, but actually, I'd be terrified inside. Mm, but yeah. you'd think, what else can I do? So the next time he started bawling me out about not having had anything in the paper for a couple of days, I pointed out the stuff I'd told him about that had appeared in other papers since, but they'd chopped off their news list. And it, they weren't great tales, but they'd made other papers, mm. and I started shouting back at him. And, and, um, and, and now we've been married for 27 years. <laughs> 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 we, we ended up mates. Yeah, yeah. Were there any say. moments, though, when those things were happening where you think, I can't survive this environment, this, this yeah. isn't for me? Yeah, I mean, it, but by the time I came to leave by accident, my liver was taking such a pasting that, that, that I don't know what would have happened if I'd stayed. And then there was one awful mistake when I interviewed Paul Whitehouse, and I thought he'd told me that they weren't going to make any more fast shows I can't even remember what I got wrong but it, it, it ended up on the front page oh, right. and I'd got it wrong I was very very drunk I, I was <laughs> I, 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 yeah. I, I really was and yeah. and, um, and he was complaining about a, a series of repeats or right. something and, and in yeah. my mind and in my copy it turned into he won't make any more fast shows unless they promise to put it on BBC One instead of BBC Two. Right. And that, that is the per the answer to your question, is those phone calls at quarter past midnight, half past midnight, when the first editions have dropped, yeah. and the night editor rings me up as head of department to ask why we haven't got this story, is that story true, why we haven't got that. And that, that, that was bleak. That was bleak, because it was so late, you could never relax. Mm -hmm. You know, and... And I was at fault most of the time. I mean, there's only so many times you can say that's bullshit, boss, or 
you know, oh, we had that, it's not a story, they must be desperate printing that. I was very, very good at talking a good game. I was not a very good show business journalist. Um, and those, that, that, that Nokia ringtone <laughs> still yeah. strikes terror into my heart, even now. That, 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 and that's when I began to think, you know, I thought I was going to be a theatre critic for the Sunday Times or something like that. Mm. I didn't think I was going to be doing tabloid showbiz journalists. And some days I bloody loved it. I really loved it. And I had a bit of freedom to do reviewing and, and, and meeting bands and interviewing, doing big feature pieces. But the bread and butter was the news stories, and I mm. hardly ever got any. And so that was when I began to think, what are you going to do next, mate? You know, what, 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 you can't keep this up indefinitely. You're going mm. to go nuts. It's interesting you're saying about the... the Sort of partying hard as well as mm, working hard, and that—that yes. that was sort of indicative of the industry. Oh, I well, it was on showbiz, not yeah. on much else by that point. Oddly, I mean, when I did shifts at the Telegraph, it was down at Canary Wharf, mm-hmm. and uh, and and because uh, and Dad had been on the Telegraph when it was on Fleet Street, um, and I remember ringing him up and saying, "No one goes out at lunchtime," and even Dad couldn't quite believe. He'd only been out of the game for a couple of years; he couldn't quite believe it. He said, "How do they get stories?" Because Dad would be out meeting you know, the head of the fraud squad from the local police force, or he'd be meeting the head of the union at Longbridge because there was another strike coming up, or he'd, be, he'd have Arthur Scargill on the phone. Mm. I mean, you know, mm. Dad was just a business at this. And and he couldn't quite understand it. So there was no socialising, really, unless you were on a story, unless you were in the pack waiting for a quote, and then you might all retire to the pub. But apart from showbiz and, and parley, politics, that had gone. There was that, that... So, yeah, I was very lucky to get in on the the rear end of the mm. good old days when you had an expense account mm. and you were allowed to entertain. But also, because I hung around the office a lot, because I loved elements of it, I also became friends with the lads who were 20 years older than me and who were the end of an era. Yeah. You know, the backbench, the people putting the paper together, the ones who would know what to do with the metal rulers that we all used to bang everybody out when, they, yeah. when, they, when an editor left or something like that. So I, I just got in at the... It just got in on the tail end of the romance, and and that was a real stroke of luck. Looking back, I didn't realise it at the time, mm. but um, but yeah, the 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 downside of that was that it was a hard drinking, hard mm. living fraternity, and and um, uh, you know, I, I think back to some of the lunches, let alone the evenings. Mm. You know, lunches where I would write, I'd come back with two bottles of wine inside me, me personally. And write 2,000 words without blinking and file it and see it in the paper the next day and not really remember a great deal about <laughs> the process of writing it. Which it, Oh, well, you've got a sub-editor. They can but, sub it, sub all mistakes exactly out. When you're in your 20s... <laughs> my bylines on it. <laughs> it's so cool. It's yeah. so rock and roll. If I was still doing that now, 20 years later, in my 40s, I, I, I'd, it'd be tragic, I think. Mm. And yet I would never have really realised how tragic it was potentially going to become. Yeah, but there are old newspaper boys who, who have done that. Still and, at it. And still mm. at it, yeah. yeah. yeah I know Fair some as well. Yeah, yeah it's a different lifestyle. It Things is, have changed. It's not for me. You know, I've got a young family. I love spending time with my girls. I, lo- I love my wife. I'm very boring and uxorious. And all. I didn't want to be out. And, and yet, once you're, it's like rails. Once you're on those rails, if you don't get off fairly quickly, mm. then... Either you never get off at all, or you get chucked off them when you don't want to be. And, and, and oddly, just luckily, I managed to, to get out of that and, and, and carry on doing work that I absolutely loved. I think the, the move to online has changed it as well, because that's brought a new breed of journalists, I think, into it, newsrooms it, that are different from the old paperboys. Even less going out of yeah. the office. Oh, yeah. You know, even less. It's just rewriting copy now, yeah. not, not even writing your own copy originally. I, I don't know what I'd do for a career now if I was in my 
um, 20s, early 20s, when I was leaving college now. I mm. really have no idea what I'd do, but, but some, of the, some of the new sites, not the online versions of traditional media, but stuff like, obviously, Huffington Post and, and BuzzFeed, but Joe, where I worked for a bit, I did some great work with Joe. The, that, that's really exciting, but I don't know enough about the, um, the, the bricks and mortar of it to know how sustainable these, these mm. jobs are in the long term. Different routes into it, yeah, it's very different. Exactly. In fact, I worked at Joe as well, so Did I can you? talk to you about oh, that. Good. But just one more story on uh, those sort of late-night editions yeah. and getting mistakes. So I used to work at the, the Daily Mirror on the sports desk, and one of the jobs was you would stay late and you'd be subbing all the paper stories yeah. uh, for 10.30 that night before they go out in the paper the next day, all the sports stories. And I heard a st- an urban myth, I don't know if it's true, <laughs> of one lad who was doing the, the late-night production shift and he's subbing all the stories. It's probably a Saturday, so there was the Sunday paper and the pullout, so there's lots of stories. And he'd done them all, and he was like, there weren't that many stories today, but yeah. I, I think I'm <laughs> 10 o'clock, I think I'm sort of done. Yeah. And it turns out that he'd subbed all the Irish Mirror stories That's instead fantastic. of the uh, the UK That's version. An <laughs> I can imagine paper. his stomach dropping oh. at 10.30. But, but this is the amazing thing, is it's on the newsstands the next morning. So it's all very well saying it's to, you know tomorrow's fish and chip paper. The magic of having influence over that stuff. Yeah, and of course the terror when you've dropped a clangor like yeah. that is—it's very hard to convey to to, to people. At least, at least with online, obviously you can then you change, change it. it but I remember like going home at, like midnight from a production shift and just thinking, "Well, I hope everything's all right. I hope I haven't made any mistakes." You just think, "I'm going to get a phone then, call if it is." Yeah, the higher up the ladder you get, the, the, the more likely it is that if something oh, has nice. gone wrong, the buck will stop with you. My favourite was a as a lad who done very very well for himself. But when he was trying to get noticed in the newsrooms, the news editor came over to him and said, there's been a crash on the M3. Um, get get down there, see what you can pick up. He came back with a bumper. <laughs> yes! <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, that's excellent. Isn't it? It's great, though, because <laughs> you'd probably excellent. give him respect for that. A, while also going, you stupid. <laughs> you almost go, but if he meant that, <laughs> what a gag. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Fair <laughs> play, that's excellent. <laughs> So moving on from that, obviously mm. you got into broadcasting. How did yeah. that sort of occur? By accident. Really? The, the, the Express was owned by Clive Hollick, Lord Hollick, who was a Labour mm. peer, who also owned Anglia Television, and I think he had a stake in Channel 5. And Anglia Television had come up with an idea for a daytime show for, for Matthew Wright, who was the, oh, Mirrors, right, yeah, yeah. the Mirrors showbiz columnist, and, and, a, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a mate of mine. I was closer to his wife, actually, because his wife was a music PR. So she'd occasionally organise dinners for... Um, uh, all for, for me to go out and in fact the, the night I took Lucy out for the first time was after I'd interviewed one of Jane's clients and I was sitting in Andrew Edmonds in Soho with Jane and Matthew and Lucy went to the loo she, she, she was on work experience and had mm. been told to shadow me or, or I forget the exact details she was a graduate trainee she wasn't on work experience so she got onto the bloody scheme I couldn't get arrested <laughs> and I remember saying to Jane I said I'm not being funny Jane but I think she might quite like me and Jane, Jane was like, don't be stupid. She's way out of your way. <laughs> um, but anyway, so there was a friendship there. Anglia and Channel 5 are putting together this mm. daytime TV show, which needed panellists. And because Hollick also owned The Express, they, they thought, well, let's see if we can find any panellists on The Express to do it. And I, I could cut a long story short, I got the job. And then they realised they weren't going to be able to make it in London for various regional requirements for ITV franchises. They're going to make it in Norwich. And we couldn't possibly commute. And they were offering me more money to do one hour a week every morning on Channel 5. Than I, and I was on a good whack as yeah, showbiz yeah, yeah. editor of the Express. Yeah. But they're not just more per DM or per hour. They were offering me more full stop for the, for the annual. And we didn't have kids. It was a big risk. 
I'd not really harbored any broadcasting ambitions before. Um, but we did it, and, and it went great for a while, and then it didn't. And we had a brief, just under a year, although it felt a lot longer, where I wasn't sure what I was going to do next. But Lucy said, don't. I said, we're going to have to go back to newspapers. And she said, don't. Give yourself a chance. You're good at this broadcasting lot. Brackets, silently, much better than you ever were at the <laughs> news, news end of, of, of newspapers. I'd have been fine on the last pages or the features, but very much so. Yeah. She's a brilliant news journalist. Um, and, and, you know, I, I'm earning decent money. I think she was on the Mail on Sunday by then. And you don't need to. And if you go back now, you'll go back lower than you were before. Yeah. You won't be able to go back in at the same level. And, and you won't enjoy it. So she told me not to and, and scrabbled around for a bit, you know, doing paper reviews here and panels there and holiday cover there. And then, then rocked up again, largely by accident, at LBC, and, 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 and I haven't looked back. It's by far the dream job, even now, 16 years later. I'd, I'd, I can't believe I get paid to do it every day. I was going to say, and you, so you do enjoy it more than the paper stuff. Oh, it's incomparable. Incomparable. I, I don't know what would have happened if I'd stayed in papers. I'd, I'd have aimed for, for, the, for the heights. But as I say, it, whatever you did, it would be a 20-hour, you know, or, or a 24-hour day in some ways, mm, yeah. unless you became a columnist. And... and um, I was always more interested in the nuts and bolts of the paper. So oddly, I've become a columnist, but on air. Yeah. And, yeah. I, and I get I get to write, you know, three columns a day, not not one a week. And I love pretty much every minute of it. But but yeah, it happened entirely without any plan or or, or prior forethought. You know? You've clearly always been someone that's open to you know changes and possibilities, and that's how these opportunities normally arise. Well, I was then, Jim. I don't know that I am now. I mean, I, I look at you know my outgoings now and the, the, you, we all get used to a certain level of lifestyle and risk often involves compromising it or or, 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 or stepping away from it so there have been a couple of things overseas that that we looked at but if they're only offering you a 12-month contract even if they're offering you the world if it doesn't come off at the end of that 12-month yeah. contract again you might be able to slot back into your old mm. position and, and broadcasting Thank God there, there aren't that many people vying. Or, or, or in, once you get into a certain pool, it's, it's not actually very well populated. But I, I, wouldn't be, I wouldn't take the risks at 47 that I would have taken at 27. Mm, I, I know those risks well. Everything's about to change for you. <laughs> yeah, I've got time, some decisions to make. Um, but with the, I mean, your your LBC show is so so good, Thank and it's you. and it's it's obviously sort of got a sort of cult following to it as well. Um, well I would say a mainstream following. A mainstream there, following, yeah. yeah. But I mean, it's cult, very popular. Yeah. But there yeah. must be, and you've been doing it for a while now. Moments during the show where, and obviously this pod's about blank moments, where mm. but where awkward moments are thrown up, be it uh, a guest. You know, losing their words or something. Yes. Or even for you, potentially. And you know, do, do you have sort of blank moments where things aren't working? How do you sort of deal with that when it when it's when it's live? I, I'm very lucky like that. It's uh, it's it's uh, very very early on. There's a an American radio consultant they brought in for everyone on the station, and and she just said, always remember that you're talking to one person rather than addressing a room. And it's 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 not unique advice. She's not the only person who offers it up, but it just found a resonance with me it just hit the spot it was exactly what I needed to hear at exactly the right time so I've always in in, in the studio been super relaxed but also nervous you've got you've got mm. adrenaline and you're, yeah you, you know but but not not really conscious of, of 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 the audience being out there in their thousands now in their hundreds of thousands um 
so the embarrassments come sometimes, you know, if, you, if you're too prickly, if you're going for a fight when you shouldn't have done, you know, you realize when the person responds to your verbal aggression by saying something that makes you realize you've completely misconstrued the original. But they, they were talking once a year on stuff like that. There's, there's no, um, the, the, I mean, I live in terror. Every time I come back from holiday, I live in terror of walking into the studio and some, somehow not being able to talk. Not, yeah. not, not in a paralysis type anxiety dream way, but just, what, well, oh, okay, well, well oh, well, what, 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 what but mm. touch wood, <laughs> touch wood, it hasn't happened yet. It's, so no, I don't, I don't get that. I had it once. Um, I did a show for Five Live many, many moons ago when we were in Norwich. God, I haven't thought about this in years. And it was a weird show. It was like a, 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 an eviction show. Very right. short, shortly after Big Brother came out, they pitched it to Five okay. Live as ordinary people debating politics every day, and the listeners will vote them off one by one. Not oh, a bad blimey. idea. Okay, they should, they should bring that back. They should bring it back. <laughs> yeah. And Five Live played it out throughout the day. So I'd do the right stuff in, in, in the Anglia studios in Norwich. They put, they put us all up in a hotel. I think So I'd do a hit for the breakfast show for Five Live, then go off and do the right stuff for now, and then come back and feed into the five live schedule throughout the day. So it was surprisingly hard work mm. for me. And they did come to me on the second or third day, and nothing happened. I just completely, I mean, you, you want blank. This is as blank as it gets. <laughs> yeah. um, like that. Mm. And then, and so the presenter at the other end then says, I'm sorry, there's something wrong with the line. There's something gone wrong <laughs> technically there. And they thought it had. Yeah. And the producer back in Norwich is, um, what, what's wrong with you? I said, I've got no idea, mate. I'm so sorry. I just went completely blank. But that is the only time that it has ever happened to me. And I, and I can't remember it that clearly. Yeah. So I can't tell you why, but it was, it, yeah, so it has had crikey. Oh, yeah, it's all there. I've forgotten did that. You get did you get evicted after? <laughs> 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 I, I nearly got sued for that. Oh, the really? the food in this hotel was so awful. And it all had an... It all had, um, an Adam and Eve theme for some reason. The what? hotel had it. I don't go there. It's how Norwich. Do, how do you do? <laughs> it's because like it was the snakes around and, and like and, fig and, leaves and the um, <laughs> and an apple. The restaurant was called the Garden of Eden Restaurant. And as I did the thank yous at the end of the week, we were there for a week, I think. And and I said thank you to everyone in the Adam and Eve Hotel and and um, the Garden of Eden Restaurant, so called because the food really should be forbidden. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> good it's a it's a great line. Come yeah, on, it's I, mean, it's a, a line. I, I, I didn't know where it was. And so everyone in the room is rolling around on the floor because yeah. we've been eating this yeah. much for a week. But of course, they heard it. They had it on in the. It was very awkward. Oh. <laughs> it was very. I'd like to withdraw that now. Yeah, yeah. That seventeen. Set the record straight. Yeah, exactly that. Exactly that. Going oh, back to the man. LBC stuff, mm, obviously, great. a lot of the videos have gone viral, and mm. your profile has got well, that, bigger yeah, and bigger. Yeah, inextricably linked. Yeah, yeah. How? How's that been adjusting to that? Like, obviously, because you've become more high profile, obviously, you've got I've much. Bit, yeah, I've loved every minute of it. I'm glad it happened in my 40s. If it had happened in my 30s, yeah. I probably would have made a bit more of a dick of myself or, or got a bit more carried away with the stuff. But, but you know, doing Newsnight for the BBC, getting stopped a lot now, and, and um, the book doing very well, much better than any of us expected. There, there, touch wood, there is no downside. The only thing you are conscious of is people waiting for you to fail yeah um uh, possibly with some justification 
but that's a very small price to pay for success. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and also, you know, in the in the world that I move in, th- th- there's there's a lot of envy, which I still feel quite insecure inside. Mm-hmm. But when you realise that journalists you knew when you were a tea boy are now looking at you and snarling a bit um, and, and, and really not making any effort to disguise that sense of bitterness, or they probably they probably reject the description of envy. They describe it as something else. Um, do you know, I, I even take that as a compliment. Mm-hmm. There's even a little bit of me then that goes, oh, blimey, well, if I've got up your nose, then... Because mm. you've had a few spats, haven't you, really on, well. on, on Twitter, for example? Yeah, I mean, m- mostly with Piers, but Piers, that's all well, Piers yeah. does. I don't think yeah. Piers is remotely envious of, of, of my career. There might be elements of what what I do that he likes. Um, I got the honorary, I've, be, I've had the honorary block. I, have, yeah. I, I find him, I, I <laughs> used to find him fascinating. I don't know anymore. I, it, 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 I think the world is a more colourful place with him in it. But I, I, the Trump stuff is, I think a lot of people are going to be very harshly judged yeah. By, yeah. By, by history over the Agreed. Trump stuff. Because there's yeah. a line over which yeah. no one should be permitted to tread. And not only, not only failing to call out that line but staying friends staying supportive staying yeah. a cheerleader of someone yeah. who's crossed that line is, is is something I don't think I could do but we shall see you know how, mm. how these things pan out I, I've had a few spats mm. and, and usually uh, much less now actually in fact the reason why um, Piers is, is, is the most obvious one is because he's got millions and millions mm-hmm. of followers now I realise if someone comes after me on Twitter with a blue tick and 30,000 followers they're just hoping to get I mean, let alone 3,000. Yeah, yeah. They're just hoping to get into a fight because I've got half a million now. Yeah. And that's what you do. You pick a fight with someone yeah. who's doing a lot better than you are, hope yeah. that they'll engage, and then yeah. you sort of harvest. So, so I find it supremely easy not to get involved yeah. in any <laughs> but of that. That's literally out of, because my, my wife Miranda was reading an article on this, that is literally out of like the, the handbook of trolls. It's is like the it really? 101 of trolling is... You go after a big name yeah. because then you get all the trickle-down followers Even from that. Even if you're a medium-sized or small name yeah. yourself, not just some, because I used to have the image of the bloke in his mum's back bedroom with a, you know, in a dirty bathrobe mm. with his Tesco laptop trying to get noticed. That's yeah. my old perception of a troll, um, which, again, is mostly hilarious. But no, now it's people in the industry as mm. well. People, it's almost people, like a career path. It, 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 yes, so I, 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 I don't think that I'm going to be a stepping stone for many people on that particular career path <laughs> I find I used to there's a again this might sound cocky but there's a a point and I can't tell you where it is on social media and Twitter's my thing where you search for your own name um, yeah. because the idea of walking past a room where you know people are talking about you and not putting your ear to the door is weird right yeah but there comes a point where you never do that anymore there's enough going on above the surface outside the door um, and I think yeah. for me, reaching that point, I couldn't tell you when it was in terms of time or, or numbers, mm. or, or maybe it's linked to things going well outside of, of the radio studio or just different stuff happening. But when you stop doing that, it's quite liberating because you genuinely mm. don't care, you know, mm. um, and you don't care whoever it is. If you're confident that you are, uh, you've got the courage of your own convictions, mm. then the, 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 the lad who was ringing the speaking clock back in the day would find it very hard to recognise the lad yeah. who doesn't care even if household name journalists come swinging I'm, I'm comfortable with what I do I have the courage of my convictions I find it supremely easy to completely ignore you 
you know? I wish I was still in that. I, I, I searched my name, and unfortunately, there's an American right-wing pastor also called Jim Daly. Oh, no. <laughs> Spelled <laughs> the same way. Oh, and he's not a nice fan. Oh, no. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> but at least you know it's not you. There's, some <laughs> yeah, poor, yeah. there's a poor sod in... There's one in New York and one in Australia, both journalists, both called James O'Brien, and both one of them has now had to protect his account, and, and, and one of them every now and then has to send out a tweet saying, I am not the droid you're looking for. He's getting some abuse from someone. the guy that's called John Lewis some on pro- Twitter. Yeah, well. oh, he's a genius, <laughs> yeah, though, isn't he? He yeah. is a genius. But, so you know, some New York DJ getting caned about Brexit. <laughs> and he's, he's just, you have to just feel sorry for him, don't you? But uh, can we, do you think it's ever going to get any better on those four fl- platforms? I suspect... I imagine if everybody ignores these people, then they stop, do they? I don't know, because now yeah. you have this weird world where they um, they almost sort of thrive on it. They get noticed by each other. So I don't think it's social yeah. media that did this. I think it's the below-the-line comments. If you put something below the line in The Guardian or The Mail, and it's absolutely batshit, not yeah. necessarily mm. vile, but let's say vile as well, and in normal company and historically, people would have crossed roads to avoid you for coming out of that stuff. And in the old days of newspapers, it would have come in in green ink and, and arrived on our desk. You'd have read it, passed it around, had a laugh, screwed it up, yeah. it in the bin. Now, you might see 50 little green thumbs up next to it. Yeah. Now, you don't know how many of those people are real. And I think this is the most fascinating element of media mm-hmm. in the near future is finding out how much of this you know, Facebook-type manipulations and uh, bot, bot farms rather than trolls and, and deliberate attempts to poison the well of public discourse because it's the stuff like vaccination that is coming up now out of the Russian yeah. the bot yeah. farm. There's more on vaccination than there is on, um, you know, the French elections. It's just this attempt, to you'd think, to destabilise, to dilute stability. So you don't know whether or not they're real people or not, but you know that by doing something batshit and vile, in a, in a sort of quasi-public space, because you're still not doing mm-hmm. it under your real name and you're still not leaving the house to do it, you, you're getting a- approval and, and admiration. So it almost, things that aren't true must be a bit true, because look, I got 68 likes today. And, and I think, I think, and I'm overreaching a bit now, I think that explains Trump. I think that his understanding, it's not unique to the modern era, because Orwell predicted it almost perfectly, but he, he knew that you can somehow create an alternative reality. It's what fake news is designed mm-hmm. to do. It's the, it's the other side, isn't it, of what he calls fake is true. Therefore, uh, the people who think that what he calls fake isn't true think he must be telling the truth. And you, you then get to lie about whether or not it was raining yeah. at your own yeah. inauguration. Yeah. And, and you know you're not going to convince 100 people or 100% of people that it was raining. You just have to convince enough. Yeah. that somehow they're not going to go straight to Orwell. They're not going to trust the evidence of their own eyes and ears. They're going to trust what this this person tells them. And I think the seeds for the modern incarnation of that phenomenon are set in the in the comment sections and that they have fed into the, the social media stuff. So, for example, um, when I'd still see this stuff, I got sacked from Newsnight. You see, now that I think even appeared on the Guido Fawkes page, mm-hmm. but they at least have a semblance of journalistic standards. So they had to change it while, 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 while simultaneously, I think, claiming that they hadn't changed it. It's simply not true. But there comes a point where pointing out that it's not true almost almost adds to the sense that it is. Yeah. Why are you bothered? So it creates you, the yeah. conspiracy. Yeah, but if it, enough yeah. people say it... Yeah. 
then yeah. they, I, I don't know, do they know it's not true, but they think it's hurting, or so they're going to carry on? They're, that's where the fake news paradigm becomes so fascinating, where people are propounding things they know not to be true. Quite the opposite, in fact. It's a rare example of me actually exercising pure principle to my own detriment when I left Newsnight. I wish I hadn't felt that I had to. I really do. So maybe that's part of it. They hate the idea of someone doing something for good reasons because they have to keep believing themselves that everybody's as nasty as they are under the bonnet. Otherwise, mm. they'll have a crisis of conscience uh, or some sort of crisis of confidence. But it's as if these pockets create an alternative unreality where, where their lies, whether it's no-go zones and Sharia law yeah. in parts of London, people passionately believe this stuff, even though it's bollocks. And I haven't yet discovered the tools to undo that, I'm just relatively grateful that the stuff they passionately believe about me that's bollocks is all relatively trivial. Is it because like people, well, f- for a start, we'll end up, we're going to end up in this space where you can't really, no one can trust anyone else yeah, about well, anything I, I they say. That's what, that serves the purposes of, of state enemies. If you were to reach for the Russian argument, that suits them. They don't care what we believe. They just don't want there to be an objective truth. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, but... <sighs> I forgot where I was going to go at that point. Actually. Sorry, I interrupted. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're blank moment. Uh, carry on. People, people, <laughs> people won't know who to trust. Yeah. And, 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 and therefore you have the, okay. the far-right websites popping up, offering yeah. up lies, as, and they look like news. You but know? I've remembered what I was going to say. Um, is it because, is it human nature that people want, they want to believe this stuff almost? They almost maybe know it's not true. I'm talking about the general public. Yeah. They want to because they want to believe something strong. You know what I mean? They want they even if it is something because it feeds into the narrative that they want. They just it, it, or they fear. like yeah. believing in stuff. No, they fear. like being frightened. Yeah, I think the line I use I use it so often now. I, I might get it tattooed. <laughs> um, is that it's much easier to sell tickets for the ghost train than it is for the speed your weight machine? So yeah. in the first instance, yeah. and this is why I can still be friends and, and colleagues with people who've done the entry level stuff. In the first instance, it's great business. Someone over there trying to nick your job. Um, and it, it's it's not always racist. It could be someone unemployed mm. who who is taking the piss while you get up and go to work every morning. And it's usually when I get the phone calls about it, it's usually my wife's cousin's husband. Do you see what I mean? It's always there's always someone in their mind who embodies this yeah. um, this enemy and and fear Spends enough distance to it. Yeah, exactly that. And 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 I think people quite like that feeling. And it's red meat, so you throw them red meat, and yeah. and it's where it leads next that gets really terrifying. It leads to that disgusting breaking point yep. poster and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. they're not doing it for, for fun and, and money. They're doing it for the vilest and most ancient of reasons. Um, but but yeah, that that that's the worry, isn't it? That this this almost willful choice to and pretend isn't the right word. You know, I take a caller from someone who says that there there are places in London you can't go, or I get a message from someone in Texas who says there's no go zones, and you say prove it, <laughs> and they do two things now. They they tweet an article by a guy called Dan Casita, who, as a as a as a as, a, as an exercise in myth busting, went into all the areas in London that he'd been told by Americans were no go zones, and you know drank pints of beer in pubs yeah. in Sharia law areas, you know yeah. bookmakers and all of these, yeah. and and they send that article because it's got a headline on it, which if you don't read the article might temporarily, if you squint a bit, support the notion that this article is actually about the existence <laughs> yeah, yeah. of no go. So yeah. he does great. He does great work. And the other thing they send you is a picture of a sticker on a lamppost saying you are now entering 
a Sharia law zone and you sort of think I could go out yeah, there and put a sticker yeah. on a lamppost saying yeah. you're now entering the independent republic of James O'Brien it's <laughs> just ridiculous to suggest that anybody therefore has to genuflect yeah. when they see me coming up the road so I don't get it but I, I'm a bit more charitable than I used to be <clears throat> because if you are genuinely frightened then you do turn off sometimes your critical faculties so if people do think that you know all Muslims are terrorists they shouldn't think that, but if they do, they're not as bad, the people that have believed it, as the people who have told the lies. Yeah. The people who have believed the lie are not as bad as the people who have told the lie. The problem then becomes people who believe the lie start repeating the lie, and at what point do they become the people who are telling the lie? lie. But, yeah, yeah. You know, this is, this is stuff that um, it's going to be a, a big task for the industry and society at large to solve these problems. The only places you can't go in London are basically where the tube doesn't go. No, basically, exactly that. Bits yeah. of West London and South East, basically. Exactly that. DLR, no, I'm all right. Exactly. But how does that sit with you when, for example, you have to obviously share a, um, a building with someone like Nigel Farage or yes. Katie Hopkins? Is that difficult? Does only, that make you uncomfortable? Farage these days, it makes me a bit uncomfortable, yeah. I, I mean, you know, it's not my train set. Mm. So if I had a big enough problem with it, I would have to... Um, start my own radio station. Mm. I've never had that ambition. There, there are commercial reasons for doing it. I, I don't enjoy or approve but um i know my place actually mm. uh, and my my place is on a platform that is unique that is huge that does allow me to um uh, reach out to people in ways that i would not be able to do in any other job you know walking up old street on the way here just now yeah. I, I won't keep you james but i just want to thank you for all that you do yeah. that's become a common occurrence for mm. me now and so there have been occasions when I've thought, do I, do I, I mean, people saying you facilitate it or you, you do this. And, and again, I just think, no, I don't. Fuck off. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's, it's, it is becoming that simple. I, mm. I guard against arrogance or, or, or um, a kind of aloofness, but I work stuff out. And once I've worked it out, I'm fairly committed to the sums result. And the, the, you tell me where else I can do this, 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 and this. Mm, mm. And and maybe I would then allow my misgivings about some of the company I'm compelled to keep to propel me out of the studio door. But A, I love where I work. B, I love the people that I work with, 99% of them. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and C, you know, I, I love the freedom that mm. I have. And that's almost unique in the British media. And, if, and you clearly are making a difference as well. If people are coming up from the street and saying yeah, that, yeah, then you're I, getting you through know, to people. I thought twice before I said that out loud, but it's true. Yeah. And mm. it just happened now. Again, so, uh, yeah, I mean, some people clearly feel that... that I mean, you look at what's happened with Brexit and the very simple suggestion in July of last year that if something significant didn't change, no deal or no Brexit was going to be the shakedown. Once the red lines that Theresa May introduced met the Good Friday Agreement, I, again, I did my sums mm. and, and the result came out the bottom and I'm fairly committed to that result, even when people were calling me an idiot and telling me I couldn't do maths. And usually it was the Brexiters who were furiously insistent that no deal was never going to happen. And you can list the reasons yourself because the German car industry wouldn't countenance <laughs> it because they need us more than mm. we need them. Because yeah, And you just looked at it and, and I, late after voting, I, I came to understand a lot better what's meant by the phrase the integrity of the four freedoms. <clears throat> and and I couldn't see how else it could shake down. And and as it gets more and more accurate, yeah. then more and more people think, well, thank God I saw this coming. Thank goodness James explained it. And if I get it wrong, because there, there could be a wrinkle now with a change of prime minister, but I'd still stand by with Theresa May in charge. It was going to be no deal or no Brexit. Yeah, oh, my, I don't think it's... 
suede much. Yeah. I'm just covering my ass. Um, <laughs> I've got two questions. I don't know if I'm going to ask the second question because I don't know if it's a really stupid question or not. But the first one <laughs> big fan is. is, is <laughs> yeah. I think it's a really stupid question. I'm gonna, okay, I'll do both. The first one is. Do you ever get bored of talking about Brexit and politics? Do yes. you ever go in one day and think, I, just can't, I don't want yeah, to talk yeah, about yeah, Brexit frequently. today? Mm. I don't do it every day. The, the clips are a very unrepresentative um, glimpse into what goes on on the show, not least because they often involve me pulling people's pants down, whereas the massive majority of the interactions on the programme are quite positive. Mm. Upbeat, it's a great call on Friday about the... Um, I, I, I suggested as a middle-aged, middle-class white bloke that there are reasons to celebrate the diversity of Boris Johnson's new cabinet. And I did so in good faith and very sincerely. And I took a lot of calls from, from people of colour that were incredibly insightful and helpful. So, so there's never any... Um, it's, it's, it, the, the show is usually informative, and it informs me. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, there are days when I'll say to the producer, I'm not going near Brexit yeah. today. And, and sometimes we might go for a whole week without going near it. And then another day, it, it, the news will move in such a way that means we start talking about it at 10 o'clock and then at 11 o'clock and 12 o'clock, we decide to carry on talking about yeah. it. So yeah, I get really bored of talking about Brexit, but also really scared about what's happening. Mm. And, and the, the, as soon as the fear kicks in, the boredom usually retreats. <laughs> okay, I'm going to get to the second question in a bit. But um, just something that's come off that. I've gone blank again. <laughs> hey, your your, your you message today. This is, what's this is, this happening is, this is, this today? To, to enforce the brand, right? This is yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, of course, yeah. That's exactly what really it says <laughs> on the tin. <laughs> okay, I'll go straight to the second question, which is oh, man, also gone out of your head. Which is basically, oh no, okay, got it. Um, <laughs> the the point about you you being informed as the host yeah. I think is really important yeah. as well because yeah, 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 it, yeah. it keeps you away from that narrative of I'm telling you everything, and I guess in a way the audience kind of learn as you learn about things. And I keep asking them. Give me a ring if I've got this wrong. Give yeah. me a ring if, if, if this is the way I see it. I think, I hope I've got better at this over the few, last few years in particular. Because, um, uh, you know, there's an element of insufferable priggishness to doing this, to sit there every morning and think, right, here we go. <laughs> yeah. it, it, it does demand a, a slightly odd personality, I think, on some level. But I genuinely love talking to people. It's why I wanted to be a journalist. It's why I was so mm -hmm. shocked when I rang my dad that day and said, we're not going out to meet people. We're not going out yeah. to talk to people. So, you know, if I'm doing school cuts and I've got a dozen school teachers queuing up to talk to me, if I'm doing Uber and I've got a dozen taxi drivers queuing up to talk to me, if I'm doing gig economy and I've got a dozen Deliveroo drivers or, or, or people who can't give their real name because they're frightened that their boss might be listening, working yeah. in a warehouse somewhere, all of this stuff is just magical. You can't get bored. If you're interested in other people's lives, you cannot get bored of presenting a radio phone-in show. The only circumstances in which you can get bored of doing it are if you're not genuinely interested in people. Exactly. Like, and if yeah. you're either pretending or if, if yeah. you've, you've run out of interest. Mm. But well, I, I think I, audiences can sense that. They actually. usually can. Yeah. They usually okay, are you ready for a stupid question? Yeah, absolutely. Um, going back to the politics slash Brexit kind of thing, mm. would you ever run for office? Why is that a stupid question? I don't know. I just felt it's, it's, it's a bit of an, I feel like it's a bit of an obvious question. Right, obvious isn't stupid. Um, never say never. I'd... I, I've certainly thought about it a lot more since the book came out because I've toured with the book. I've done signings and I've done a lot of festivals and had an awful lot of people um, coming up to me asking that. Yeah. I, I look at the current political landscape and think the last thing we need is another journalist moving into politics. <laughs> <laughs> I genuinely do. So Because presumably if I'm feeling that impulse grow, yeah. that's what Michael Gove and Boris Johnson felt grow inside them. 
20 yeah. years ago or 50. Yeah. And, and I'm, I, I worry that that's just vanity. Mm. Or, or, or I don't know. I, I go for the Groucho Marx line about not having any club that would have me as not wanting to be in any club that would have me as a member. I'd sort yeah, of yeah, adapt yeah, yeah. that to any, anyone who wants to go into politics should be banned from going from, into <laughs> politics. Yeah. But then you sound like you're waiting for them to come and drag you kicking and screaming <laughs> into office. So no, I'd, 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 I'd say never say never because... Yeah. Because oddly, and it's a phrase that's often uttered by people who, whose actions suggest that they don't do anything of the sort, but I do love this land. I do love this society. I love this culture. I love what it represents. It's hugely flawed. There are massive, massive fractures and, and shameful things in our shared past. But I, I, I love the NHS. I love the welfare state. I love the, the values that, that I was raised with and there are plenty of countries on this planet where I wouldn't my parents mm. wouldn't have been allowed to raise me with the values that I have and I think they are under attack um, whether intentionally or not doesn't actually matter does it if, if, if you get hit in the face it doesn't matter whether it's happened deliberately or accidentally you are in pain mm. um, and and you look at the Labour Party and you sort of wonder where the opposition is going to come from to the to the march of these madmen in um in the cabinet at the moment so so never say never but not not anytime soon not this week <laughs> <laughs> well this is going to sound sycophantic but you're def you are definitely one of the best parts of the makeup of this country you're an important person doing Thank important so things um so we normally end the podcast by getting our um this has been such a fascinating chat thank you oh, so much we've gone to so many different areas and it's you. been brilliant it's my pleasure um by getting our guests just to give their advice on blank moments and i know we sort of we touched upon a few earlier yes. Um, and you know, we always say to our guests, it, it, "This is a sort of um, interpretive interpretive word, I guess." Yes. But do you have any advice for anyone listening that might have blank moments? You know, be it literal ones or figurative ones. I, I, guess. I, I, I think everybody else is terrified too. <laughs> yeah. Mm. And yeah. Just to echo something I said twenty minutes ago, mm. the ones who aren't terrified are probably psychopaths. Yeah. So yeah. you know that that sense. I, I've had a horrible thing in the last two or three years. I think it's linked to Brexit and the rise of people like Rhys Mogg. I thought everyone got raised like I was raised. I thought everyone got told they can be whatever they want to be. They are as good as anyone, you know, that there is no know your place or forelock tugging or, 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 or deference or, or cap doffing. And, and I think blank moments probably come from the fear that you're somehow not entitled to be doing what you're doing for a lot of us or, or, mm. or, or a fear that you're somehow not qualified. Imposter syndrome it's can possibly, be healthy. Yeah. That, that can be quite healthy because it's the opposite of unjustified mm. entitlement. Yeah. But uh, for me, it would be you've got as much right to be here as anybody else does. And if you have a blank moment, you have a blank moment. It, it, it will be over. Mm. It will soon pass. Mm. And your right to be doing what it is that you're doing is is untouched, unsullied, and undiluted by that moment. Good stuff. Mate, James O'Brien, thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. <laughs> what, a pod. What, a, what a beautiful way to end as well. Oh, that was great. Thank you. Well, thank, thank you so you. much. What a, what a pod. What a man. Amazing pod. I we really enjoyed talk, that. I know we, we say this again and again. I know we like stack records, but we could have talked for ages. Definitely. I was I mean, really wary towards the end, of actually, that he didn't have that long. And I was sort of yeah. keeping him too long. But uh, so fascinating. Great stories. Yeah. And I liked, 
you know, I know we, we normally try and end the pod by getting people to give their advice on blank moments. Um, and the bit about, I've done it again, I've gone blank. I had a whole, I've had a whole pod of going blank, haven't I? This but it's is, good. This, you've been totally on I'm, brand. I'm really today. on brand. Oh, but his thing about saying everyone, everyone else is terrified as well. Yeah. Which I thought was a really nice, actually yeah. very relatable and way. And actually, do you know what? Um, I was a little terrified and intimidated earlier before we started recording the pod because, you know, James is such a formidable yeah. broadcaster. Yeah. yeah. Um, I have to say I was feeling a little bit nervous beforehand. But, I mean, as soon as we started chatting, it was, you know, it was great. And yeah. he stayed down to earth and, and, and I love a guy. So it was... You know, there was none of that at all. That sort of dissipated oh, no. very quickly. It's a dream so. guest, absolutely yeah. dream guest. And uh, yeah, so James, thank you so much for yeah, giving us your you time and coming much, on James. the pod. That was uh, fascinating. I apologise for my blank moments, but as Charles says, it, it is on brand. So yeah. um, there you go. Um, do we have any correspondence? Yes, we do. Okay, here's a message from Z, aka Bread, which is a great, <laughs> great okay. handle uh, on Twitter. Uh, just discovered blank pod. Uh, the one with David Harbour oh, is making yeah. my heart full and happy. Oh. Go listen to their pod because these guys have a great message to spread. Oh, lovely. Nice tweet. Thank you very much for that. And I've got one from Lavania, at Lavania85, uh, who says, um, so I must have been hiding under a rock, uh, but I've just been alerted to the, the lovely, Charles Bailey Phillips, podcast, Blank Pod. And um, Jim Daly. <laughs> and Jim Daly. Um, I now know... Uh, what I'll be listening to on my commute. So oh, lovely. Uh, well, there are some cracking guests. Thank you very much, uh, Levania85. Um, lovely tweet. And we, we, we do get cracking guests. And we we're, very, we're very lucky. We are very lucky. Yeah, we are. Uh, so if you'd like to tweet us as well, um, we'd love to hear from you. Um, let us know what episode you're listening to. Um, our handle is... At Blank Pod. It is indeed. And we're also on Twitter. No, and we're also on Instagram and Facebook as well. We've got pages on there. And the handle is... At Blank Pod. Keeps it all on brand, on simple, doesn't it, really? Easy um, peasy. Exactly. Uh, and you can email us. Our email address is... Theblankpodcast at gmail.com. There you go. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. And that's it for this week. It is. Yeah. Back again next week. Back hopefully. again next week. <laughs> well, we'll see. Unless we get cancelled in somehow. Yeah. I don't is know. that going to we happen? Well, I think only I, we can cancel it. We're the yeah. only ones. We have the power. We do have the power. Yeah. Let, yeah. Do you know what? Let's not cancel it this week. No. Let's roll Let's over and do going. another one next week. <laughs> yeah. We'll be back with you uh, next week on The Blank Podcast. Have a great week. And we'll see you then. Media Podcast.